Welcome to China in Context, the weekly podcast from the SOAS China Institute in London. I'm Zuri Linetsky, Research Fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation in Washington, D.C. Every year, China's political leadership meets in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing for two parallel two-week meetings called the Two Sessions. The meetings generally focus on domestic issues for the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China. This year, in addition to rubber stamping Chairman Xi Jinping's unprecedented third term as China's leader, there were several other noteworthy developments that reverberated internationally. I'm pleased to welcome longtime China watcher and regular host of this podcast, Duncan Bartlett, to help us tease out the consequences of the two sessions. Duncan, thanks so much for being willing to take a turn on the other side of the microphone to discuss this fascinating topic. I'm glad to talk to you about it, Zuri. Thank you for taking over the presenter's role this week. It's absolutely my pleasure. So to dive right in, what did you make of the headlines in the international press relating to the two sessions? Well, let's imagine for a moment that we're sitting in the lobby of a nice hotel in central London, maybe one near Buckingham Palace, and uh, we order some coffees and I've got the newspapers in front of me. And you say to me, look, you're a journalist. Tell me what the headlines are saying about China. What's new? What's interesting? I'm not going to be able to read all the articles to you, but let me put some headlines your way. Discipline. The uh, Communist Party wants its members to be disciplined and committed. Loyalty. Loyalty to the Communist Party and loyalty to Xi Jinping. And that's why his acolytes and his yes men have been appointed to the most senior positions in Chinese politics. Now, here's one with a figure attached to it, a rise in defense spending, 7%. Significant because that's faster than the growth rate that's being projected for the whole Chinese economy. But on the economic front, there's a promise here that China's economy is going to spring back and have a much better year in 2023 than it did last year when it was constrained by the zero COVID policies uh, which were lifted. Having said that, there are lots of issues which didn't get discussed. There wasn't very much about demographics or the aging population of China, very, very little about climate change. And don't forget, you know, what we're looking at here in our London hotel are newspaper headlines that have been written by Western journalists based on what the Communist Party was prepared to offer them at this rather strange meeting. It's a strange meeting because it looks like a parliament and yet there's no debate about policy. And every single time a motion is voted on, all the delegates who are supposed to be politicians vote the same way. They support Xi Jinping, they support the Communist Party and they support every single suggestion which is put before them by the Politburo of the Chinese government. So Chinese Foreign Minister Ching Gang caught American attention when he discussed the possibility of conflict and cooperation between China and the United States. What other international relations issues were discussed at the two sessions or made international headlines? Well, it was interesting to hear Ching Gang because he's only recently been appointed as the State Council of the Foreign Minister. That's a promotion. He's succeeding Wang Yi. Wang Yi has also got a promotion. Now he's in the Politburo and he's being described as China's top diplomat. So those two men 
are now going to be the people who appear at international meetings with presidents and prime ministers uh, and explain what China's position is. They will both 100% agree with whatever Xi Jinping's position is on foreign policy issues. Interesting that they've got those top jobs. Um, I also thought that there was an intriguing development outside the Great Hall of the People, uh, and that was to do with China's role in the Middle East. So what we learned once the two sessions meeting was finished is that people from Iran and Saudi Arabia had been in Beijing talking to each other. And those two countries have now agreed to resume diplomatic relations. And China says that's the result of our diplomatic efforts. Look, we're bringing peace to the Middle East. And so we're going to see more of this, China trying to present itself as a broker between parties. I think it's very jealous of the role that the United States has traditionally had in this uh, in this way. You know, for example, the United Nations always meets in New York. China would like a few more of these high level meetings to take place in Beijing. But it'll be difficult, I think, to persuade the Europeans or America and its allies to take part in discussions hosted by China. So in addition to Qinggang taking on a new role, who are some of the new officials in new positions of power that China watchers need to look out for? And why are they important? Well, the second most important person in China after Xi Jinping is the premier. That's sometimes described as the prime minister. But I, I think actually prime minister is a term that should really be used only in democracies, really, rather than autocracies like China. Anyway, it's still an important position. Li Chang now takes that role. Uh, by the way, for people who don't speak Mandarin, I, I, I and I really include myself among this, uh, these names are quite difficult. The previous premier was called Li Keqiang. The current one is Li Chang. Uh, Li Chang is seen as being moderately pro-business, uh, he seems to be less keen on using the power of the Communist Party to try to redistribute wealth or clamp down on tech companies and those kind of things. And then the other thing about personnel was that two important jobs stayed with the same men that were doing them before. One was the job at the top of the central bank. That's the People's Bank of China. Yi Gang stays there as the governor. And the other one is the top job in the finance minister. Louis Kun remains there. So there's a signal here about continuity and, and, and an emphasis on credibility and stability, trying to restore confidence in the international markets. But I think there's also perhaps behind the scenes a recognition that this stability is necessary because of some problems with China's economy. The relatively low growth rate is one thing but also the very big gap between rich and poor. You know, for a communist country, wealth inequality in China is extreme. And uh, this was something which wasn't really addressed very much, actually, at the two sessions, Zuri. A few years ago, it was quite high on the agenda, and there was talk about the common prosperity program of Xi Jinping, hardly mentioned at all now. So you've hit on something very interesting, policy prescriptions. What are some of the major policy proposals that came out of the two sessions? 
and what is likely to be their impact? Well, I mentioned the one that I think is most significant, and that's the 7% rise in defense spending. But, you know, China doesn't say how it's going to spend that money on defense. And, you know, when I speak to experts on defense and security, they say, well, how on earth do we know whether that figure is even correct? Because, you know, China is not publishing its accounts for international scrutiny to say, oh, we spent this much money on nuclear weapons. We spent this much money on um, drones that could swarm uh, enemy uh, aircraft or this much money on missiles that could uh, strike uh, Taiwan or the coast of California. You know, none of these numbers are open to international scrutiny. So in a way, 7% is a number that's plucked out of thin air. But it is an indication, isn't it, that China is definitely going to spend a lot of money on defence. And we know that this takes place after a big increase in defence spending in the United States and agreements by many other countries to increase their defence spending, including Japan. And then just shortly after the two sessions meeting uh, came to a conclusion, there was a gathering of those AUKUS countries, the United States, Australia and the United Kingdom, and an agreement for Britain to sell uh, nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. Now, there won't be an operation until uh, 2040 at the earliest, but China sees this as being a threat to its security, and therefore it's authorizing a rise in defense spending, spending on the military to protect itself. That's how it sees it. One of the other issues discussed at this year's meetings was the idea of moving away from a dependence on the U.S. market for Chinese goods. Was this a Chinese attempt to decouple from the United States market? Well, the Chinese don't advocate the idea of decoupling. They don't want America to decouple from China, and they don't want Chinese companies to decouple from the United States. They see it as being a very important market for Chinese goods. They do want a bit more self-sufficiency at home, and also, simultaneously, they want to maintain this important role for Chinese companies abroad. And you will know about this, Zuri having studied the role of China in the Middle East and also in Africa. But when it comes to uh, maintaining China's presence in terms of business in America, that's not easy. Because the way the Chinese see it, the Americans under the Biden administration are trying to hold back their economic rise for their own strategic interest. And worse still, in China's view, the US is trying to get its allies on board. And this is causing tension and conflict and a Cold War mentality in the view of China. Let's go back for a moment to the uh, new foreign minister, uh, Chingang. He highlighted at the two sessions meeting the relationship with Russia. He said that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, and Russia were, were a beacon of strength and stability. This was before uh, Xi Jinping went to Moscow for those meetings with uh, Vladimir Putin in late March. Well, I can't see America or any other democratic countries taking that view, can you? Not at all. So based on what you said, I wonder, given the record-setting trade between the two major powers in 2022, is decoupling or delinking the Chinese and American economies in any substantive way even possible? Well, it's a good question, because what you're saying there is that there is a huge amount of trade between China and the United States. 
yes, the political rhetoric is pretty negative at the moment, but there are a lot of businesses which are uh, continuing their deep relationships. When you ask me the question about whether decoupling is possible, I'd like to just put another word out there, de-risking. That's a word which is being often used now in business circles um, and in diplomacy. And the idea is that you could still do business with China, but you wouldn't become dependent on it, which was something really important for your society, such as semiconductors or batteries or some of these other strategic areas. And we are seeing a bit of that already. For example, Germany and Japan recently said that they would try to cooperate in some areas such as minerals and things like that. The aim is to better cope with uh, China's growing influence. So China wouldn't suddenly cut off supplies of these important goods and, and, and Germany could turn to Japan or vice versa for them. That's the plan. China sees this as being an attempt to decouple from China, and they don't want that. Um, so they've been very critical of, uh, of Germany and Japan for making these moves. They say that decoupling from China would only serve the interests of the United States of America. So in sum, what have we learned about the outlook of China's economy for the coming year? Well, there's a positive note to this. Uh, and that is that economic activity is definitely picking up following the end of the zero COVID restrictions. Ample evidence of that in the big cities, especially Beijing and Shanghai. And uh, Chinese people are now traveling internationally. So we've got this target of about 5% this year. It's not particularly high compared to the uh, enormous growth rate that China enjoyed for many decades. But, you know, Given that there's no unanticipated shock, the government shouldn't have too much trouble meeting that target for growth in 2023. And that will have a benefit over the global economy, too, because China accounts for about a fifth of all global economic activity. When I speak to economists, they say there was a real risk, actually, of a global recession in 2023. Now, I'll be honest, there are other factors which are casting a shadow over the global economy. For example, the crisis at some of the banks in the United States and in Switzerland. But nevertheless, with China rebounding at a projected rate of around 5%, I think the chances of a global economic recession in 2023 are receding. Thank you, Duncan, for providing us with such a nuanced discussion of the two sessions. This has been enlightening. That was Duncan Bartlett, the regular host of the China in Context podcast. This podcast is a co-production of the Eurasia Group Foundation and the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about the Institute's courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.